Welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. Uh, this is episode 311. Dial 311 for Linux. <laughs> uh, this is Tony Bemis. Jay LaCroix. Phil Parada. And Tom Lawrence. So 311, I just got back from New York, and 311 is everywhere. That's the information. Uh, it's a few other states that use it. I just know in New York, they it was very, very prevalent there. So <laughs> Yeah. I always think of that 90s band, 311. That's uh, what I was thinking, yeah, too. Yeah, too. and the 90s band, 311, uh, fun trivia, that is a, 311 is a police code for indecent exposure. In mm. a time, they were in trouble for that, so that's what they named their band. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, so this show, we're talking about the information, to call information, not to call for indecent exposures. We want we want to indecently expose the Linux, so <laughs> whichever whichever way you want to interpret our show title, feel free. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, what have we been doing the last couple of weeks? Who wants to start? Tony. Uh, me. I have actually got a new uh, hard drive for my laptop uh, and a new battery, so I can go actually more than twenty minutes uh, with it unplugged. Ooh. Uh, so I'm in the process of reinstalling everything. And uh, remaking, you know, making choices of where I want to go, and and uh, I still stuck with uh, Linux Mint. You know, it's it's just my favorite for being stable, and it's what I'm used to. And but have you tried Pop OS? I was thinking about it's it. So polished. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's not just reskinned Ubuntu, despite every comment on my YouTube video I do. And I, you I just know. do Ubuntu. I'm actually going to do a video about the differences. Like I think I did one already, but I'm yeah. probably going to do another for that yeah. reason. But it's nice. But I'm choosing to go away from Chrome. Start using Firefox. <gasps> uh, Join us. Yeah. yeah, Firefox. It's just it's so I'm I'm swinging. So in in my usage of of uh, computers over the last ten years, I go back and forth on like privacy, like severity, like which way I want to go. And uh, I had been swinging toward the Google and not so private, and now I'm com- coming back and trying to get away from some of that. I separate my business and personal life, in, which means I use Google and uh, Firefox. So yeah. Firefox is my personal life, and then Google is my business life because I, we use G Suite for my company. It just integrates smooth, mm. and there's practical reasons to use it. I'm not worried about privacy when it comes to my business. I care a lot about security, though, of course. So that's kind mm-hmm. of been my delineation between a One's for my personal habits. Right. <laughs> so once I have this set, uh, I w- so my Firefox was the first thing I changed. I'm going to change my email client. I had been using uh, Evolution for mm-hmm. a long time. And uh, really, I think I'm going to go with um, Thunderbird. Um, I but, love Thunderbird. Yeah, me too. Um, the only thing that got me off of it was switching to Gmail. I still do my email in there, but I don't really, I don't have no personal email. So there's really nothing mm-hmm. I do personally with email. So yeah. it's less of an issue. Um, and then the, uh, so the last thing I'm going to do once I have this all set is then I'm going to look at my phone provider. And, uh, so I have Google Fi right now. And so my phone is unlocked. I can go to yeah. any carrier. So that's the next thing I'm going to start researching is see if I can get the same level of service or better with, uh, privacy. Ah, Ting is offering $20 a month on limited, not unlimited data, 20 gig data, but unlimited talk and text, $20 a month. So I had tried Ting a long time ago when they were Sprint only, and uh, now I know they they have, what, uh, GSM also. Okay. Uh, So I've got to look at to see what the coverage looks like for those. So my concern with other carriers, and this has been a constant problem, and especially as I've become more public with my YouTube 
a lot of more people will try to do things like uh, sim hacking. Mm-hmm. Google is the one company that a lot of people, even security people, are going, we moved to Google because we got mad because someone, they had a guy who does a security show and someone hijacked his SIM. And it was completely T-Mobile's fault. They let, they just guessed, they knew personal information about him because he's a public figure mm-hmm. as a security researcher and were, they were able to hijack his SIM by be, be calling T-Mobile. And mm-hmm. he says, I mm-hmm. have protections against this. I have all these things. And they go, yeah, but the person convinced us. That was kind of their answer. <laughs> They, they they felt compelled that it was him, so they gave away his phone number. When that's they stole his bitcoins, they took over. They deleted his Twitter wow. account. They Oof, um, that's real rough. Yeah, they they were very bad once they did all the stuff. They were taking all kinds of things because he had so much stuff that you don't have an option for. Your two factor goes to your cell phone. Looking at you, eBay and PayPal. <laughs> right. That's one of the things that's kept me with Google because I tie it to this because there's not another option. So. Yeah. Well, the other option is having some other phone number that nobody ever knows about and pay for a second service that can receive text messages that no one knows, so you're harder to find. And I, I moved some things to that. I've actually signed up another secret phone number that does SMS that... What is that number, Tom? Let yeah. me write it down. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still that it seemed... It, it's these steps you have to go through. And it's one of the things that makes you mad. These carrier hijacking is becoming like about Linus from Linus Tech Tips. He got carrier hijacked as well. Mm. Someone targeted him and stole his domain temporarily. He got it back, but they did it by contacting the carrier and convinced them. He, Linus wow. has been around a while. They knew enough about him to convince someone on the phone that they were Linus. Drives yeah. me nuts. These carriers did not take it. Google takes it serious because it's your Google account. We learned the hard way from a client. You can't get in someone's Google account. They even had the credit card. Google wouldn't let us back in. They lost the admin password. They said the only thing you do is delete this account. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm. <sighs> anyway, sorry. Yeah, so that's what uh, that's what I've been doing. I'm, uh, uh, yeah, so just busy. Yeah, other than that, it's been unplugged for the last couple of weeks. I've been going camping a lot. Uh, camping, then work, then camping. Offline's so. good. Yeah. <laughs> and how's the job going? Good still? Yeah. Going, going good. This, uh, you don't seem like you're nodding off right now, so I'm assuming the sleep schedule's uh, figured out. I uh, no, I just had lots of coffee on the okay. drive here. <laughs> <laughs> Your body hasn't completely adapted to this different schedule. Well, it's the schedule would be fine uh, if I could keep that going, but ah. but uh, during the week with my family, kids happen. It's yeah, I'm up all day <laughs> camping, you know. And yeah, then, yeah. Uh, so that Thursday when I go back oh, to work right, is revert. the worst. Okay. Yeah. I have a really hard time staying awake. Uh, anyway, yeah, so it's been tough. So I have been basically really busy with work on my YouTube channel. I've done almost nothing else. Um, so I'm just trying to get caught up in the news and everything. But re- my recent project, it's not very exciting, but I had a really high power bill. And it's my servers. I know it is. And, you know, I moved, and it's different electric rates, so... Everything's higher. So I'm looking around the house for things to turn off. And uh, basically came to the conclusion that, well, let me just try shutting all my servers down at night. I'm not, I mean, I'm the only one that uses them. So why have them on all night if I'm not there to use them? So that brought me down a rabbit hole of trying to figure out how Wake on Land works because it's one of those mystical things that I hear about. I never use it. I never Mm. have a reason to use it. And I figured, okay, well, maybe I'll just try to figure out how to get these servers to turn themselves on at a certain time, maybe 7 in the morning. They already shut themselves down at noon. So just to see how that uh, helps. So I'm studying Wake on LAN, and I have it semi-working. I'm just looking at the different, like, how it routes uh, from one 
switch to another because some of them work, some of them don't. Long story made short, it's just um, trying to figure out how to save some power. Mm-hmm. So home lab, home lab can be kind of expensive. Yeah, we it those servers do eat up a lot. I'm excited for one. There's you know new servers coming out with a uh, risk based processors, things like that because they're lower power. And the other thing too is uh, Ryzen. Uh, one of their big advantages they have, including their server line, is they are substantially more watt CPU efficient. Mm. Uh, so mm. I've been looking at that. They they just have a really really low idle, and uh, they even their commercial ones are beating out the Xeons, which. Obviously, data centers have exactly your concern at scale. Um, the big expense of a data center isn't the hardware. It's what it costs to run it. They put data centers uh, with the cost consideration of how much does it cost to power this area. Um, Google did, did kind of a big debrief on their data center designs and saying, yeah, everything's about we chose this area because this is the rate we negotiated. We don't negotiate the land deal. The land's nothing. It's we got to negotiate with the power company. We're going to need this many gigawatts. <laughs> what can you deal for us? I'm almost to the point where I was starting to think like, a couple of thoughts enter my mind. One is, what would it cost to colo these, you know, one or more of these servers? Would it be cheaper than my actual electric bill? Maybe. But then I also started thinking, well, what about an army of Raspberry Pis to do the same thing my servers do? So I don't know which direction I'm going to go. The, right now I'm going to save power. I like but, army of Raspberry Pi. I don't know yeah. what you're doing with it, but, you know, like if you just build anything called army of Raspberry Pi, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking about, I'm at least going to try that. I have some Raspberry Pis laying around just to see what I can get myself into. But then, you know, if I can colo this, this at least one server and then put everything on one server, that might be cheaper than the difference in the electric bill right then and Build there. So. One beefy Ryzen server uh, that does all the magic with path through and everything else to run all the OSs. So, yeah, I'm gonna definitely keep looking at looking at this, see what direction I end up going. Those four gigabyte Pis are coming soon, I believe. In August, they'll start shipping. Yeah, they're shipping yeah. now. It's ah, actually I'm, supposed to be, I think, this week I'll get mine. Oh, awesome. I've nice. two of them. And nice. uh, Micro Center has them right now. They have the 4 gig ones? Yes. All right, I know what I'm doing later today. Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually <laughs> thinking about heading out there um, probably on the way home and, and grabbing one because I'm, I am I could use a third and I'm a little impatient. I want it today. So, uh, hmm. Fair enough. I, I think I may get one because I've been really itching to get one. It's like yeah. just it's Raspberry Pi four. Yeah. I love the three. Yeah, more than ten in yeah. stock as of yesterday, so I, I'm the, pretty sure they still will. The four gig is just that's the the crux to like get it to really a general purpose kind of computer. I think. I mean, it, we it's want to so too. That's because we want one on our browser in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we need an eight gig version for that. I actually talked to the lead developer RetroPie, and he says that there's literally zero benefit in going to the 4 gig uh, Pi 4 versus the 1 gig if you're doing, like, RetroPie. Yeah. Because I was thinking more RAM, they could probably have the emulators, you know, do, do a little bit more, no. but it's it's not going to benefit them it's at all. It's for people who want to open up browsers. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the reality. Or mm-hmm. run a server. Yeah. Well, in my neck of the woods, um, I bought a router. And you may be thinking, Phil, you're a networking guy. You should have tons of routers. But this one, this one is a woodworking router. I've been uh, heads down in the garage uh, doing a whole bunch of other non-tech related projects. But just because I'm just because I'm working with uh, wood and metal and stuff, um, I've still been using uh, technology. So I found an application called LibraCAD. It's a free open yes. source um, two-dimensional uh, CAD program. And it's been really, really nice to use. I filed a couple bugs, uh, made a couple basic wood joins in it, and then did the same thing with physical material. 
Um, and that's that's quite an experience. We need an open source woodworking blog from Phil now. I've got tons of pictures, and I can probably do that. Yeah. You know, I would even... So, so this router is uh, passing bits of wood instead oh. of bits of electricity. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I would actually come out and film some of that. It might be a fun project uh, to talk about the use of CAD, the use of open source. And, I, is you know, so much of it is we talk about, like, the things we do, but that's kind of a general public use. Like, that's a more broad audience. Like, how can you use open source to do woodworking? And, and I think that'd be interesting because that, that's a challenge I've noticed some people have when they start something like, oh, I, I can't afford the software to do this. I want to start doing it at my house. That's where open source can kind of like, hey, we will help you home tinkerer who wants to build things, needs some tools to do it, and doesn't want to uh, buy the full AutoCAD license, which is you know going to be really expensive for a uh, home user. So mm-hmm. it'd be kind of fun to talk about that. Sure. Uh, I, I learned that I am currently no good at 3D modeling, but 2D modeling is pretty simple and which is why you didn't build plans to build the bench you were building it looks beautiful but you you can physically build 3d models you just can't virtually build 3d models (laughs) (laughs) and we'll include a picture of the bench i've been building yeah send uh, that to me in the in the show notes Uh, other than that i found a bug in OpenSSL. Um, it's a very very minor bug every so often a certificate will fail to be parsed by the OpenSSL toolkit and it turns out that a certificate of a certain length, uh, when it runs through the various functions in OpenSSL, um, headers get stripped off, and OpenSSL no longer recognizes the certificate. Um, so there, there's an open bug on the OpenSSL GitHub. I don't yet know enough C code to try and fix it, but they've marked it as a beginner bug, and that's still pretty cool. Oh, cool. Fixing the world, saving us one bug at a time. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> I'll just introduce a couple more while I learn to fix it. Yeah, there you go. That's a fun way to do it. Uh, so how about you, Tom? Well, first my thought in my head is, do because our friends outside of here, like in England, say router, not router, but do they also say router for the other device, or is that why they have a distinction between the two words? So they don't, if you're talking about a router like a PFSense, they say router, but if it's a woodworking tool, do they say it as well? So if our British friends can answer that question, I'm really curious. Do, do you think that someone out there calls uh, people who escalate to root, routers? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting question as well. Yeah. So um, besides going to New York and being uh, dumbfounded that when I was in the New York airport, which is massively big, uh, that they had the... Uh, what was it? LaGuardia was at, which is not the biggest airport in New York, but it's, I think, the second largest one there. But the uh, they use carrier-grade NAT, which is a different RSC, but it, they also seem not to use isolation. So I'm glad I had my Linux laptop with the firewall and because uh, there was lots of people online there. So that was interesting. <laughs> um, that's all my travel experience. But uh, what I was uh, more excited about is I did buy something that does require batteries, which is a car. And uh, so I did get the Tesla. It's neat. Uh, it does have Linux in its core so you know some open source related stuff there so that's been a fun deep dive into all the gadgetry and technologies on there and i'm going to be doing a wi-fi raspberry pi that's going to plug into it because it has a dash cam that runs continuously so if someone does something stupid around you you have evidence and it's got built in all the cameras uh, and also has sentry mode which so far just catches people poking their head in their car when it's not around people are like oh look at tesla and they look inside and you can watch them walk up to the car and look in the window um and it records it to a usb drive but you can emulate a usb drive with a raspberry 
Raspberry Pi, and there's a GitHub project. Um, so it pretends to be a USB drive, so the Tesla's like, oh, it's a USB drive, I'm just going to write to it, but it's actually a uh, Raspberry Pi Zero with Wi-Fi on it, and it will then relay when it's in range, I can then download all the videos off. Right now, Tesla's solution is to take the USB drive out and plug it into some computer to view the videos. That seems hokey. I can't believe Elon did not come up with a solution for this other than that. So, yeah. <laughs> um, Other than that, I've been uh, diving in. We have a sponsor for the channel, uh, for my YouTube channel, that's providing us some hardware and giving us some good deals and stuff. So uh, they sent us a nice new Dell, and I'm going to be doing some new XCPNG and Freenance videos about building it. And uh, one of the topics first is one that you already brought up, Jay, is uh, power efficiency of these commercial servers. While they're awesome for many features in doing this, there is a trade-off of it uses a lot of wattage, especially if you have redundant power supplies and things like that. Uh, but the new version of XCPNG will be covered on it and uh, how to do all the pass-through options so you can consolidate all your servers. So you can have one good server that's really solid, but then not have a power bill from having four servers. <laughs> You do lose certain amounts of redundancy, but uh, I'm going to kind of do a series and talking about that. A lot of people want to build their own home virtual labs, so that's what it's going to be to, like, how to build your own virtual labs to get started with things. Uh, more and more people are getting into cybersecurity and malware testing, and they want to understand how to build isolated, independent networks of it. Um, and one of the features they add in XCPNG is even between servers, you can now build full private networks. We talked about this last time with the GRE tunnels and things like that. So in, in the two weeks since we recorded because of my travels and uh, goofing around playing with my car and figuring out how chargers work because I got really geeky with this, uh, with how the chargers work. So everything's been this, like constant reading, which means I didn't make that many videos. <laughs> so or, uh, nothing new. I made videos on stuff I already know. That's that's the easy part. I made a VPN kill switch video if anyone's interested in it. Um, a lot of everyone knows PFSense is overly helpful. So if you wrap things in a VPN and do policy routing, like I want this laptop to go out a VPN and show up in Sweden, when the VPN fails... It just defaults to the other route. That's PFSense being helpful. Going, oh, your VPN's down, but don't worry, you still have internet. But let's say you were maybe torrenting on said device and your ISP goes, no, we don't like to see any type of torrent traffic, you know, even though we know you're just seeding these Ubuntu's to make sure the community has quick access to things. Yes, um, yeah. Ubuntu's. It's Ubuntu's. And they, and they have <laughs> rules against this. Like, they just see torrent traffic and will ban you for doing it. So you encapsulate it in a VPN and life is good. Hmm. But when that VPN goes down, your traffic's exposed. Uh, there's a way to do it, and I detail out how to do selective traffic tags to uh, stop routing the way you want. So it's kind of a fun dive into it with PFSense. Um, any rule, you can not only apply that rule, but then tag it. Uh, it's not tagging at the hmm. TCP layer or anything. It's actually tagging it inside of PFSense. And then other rules can pick up that tag and apply extra rules to it. Uh, like policy routing. So it's kind of a fun dive into it for some advanced uses of uh, PFSense. I use multiple VPNs as a basis for why to tag it, but the reality is these same rules can apply to really any type of traffic you want uh, to get a better understanding of. But that's it. That's what I've been doing the last two weeks. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's We've cool. done this for clients, so it's been one of those things like I guess I need to do a video on like just how this all works. Magic. <laughs> all right. Listener feedback. Yeah, so listener feedback. Uh, while my email is catching up, uh, I did see one said somebody was uh, uh, suggesting a Tesla charging station. It's in Michigan. Oh, yeah. But it's 250 miles from us. So the Tesla stations, um, there's a bunch of them around. 
it will not only navigate to, if I choose a Tesla charging station in California, it will add all the Tesla charging stations I need to get to that one in California. Um, mm. The car auto-navigates all that. It's actually pretty neat. So if I plan a trip, and we're going to Traverse City, uh, it tells me what charging stations to stop at. It even predicts what my battery will be at at each one, how, much, how many minutes I have to stop at each one, and then go to the next one. Wow. So, yeah, the, that's one of the things I want to cover is just how intelligent, like, the planning is in the car. It's actually like, oh, it, I, I was worried, like, I'd have to think about this, and I'd be like, yeah. am I, am I going to run out of juice? So thank you, though, for the um, uh, telling me where they are, though. They've got maps. I, uh, and if you're an EV owner, look into PlugShare app. It's amazing because you can mm. charge them with not just the Tesla charging stations, but PlugShare. Um, you could even do this, Phil. You can, uh, if you wanted to, you could like list your house as a PlugShare and charge people to stop by your place and charge on your solar. That's actually not too bad of an idea. That sounds kind of fun. Yeah, we're going to do it here um, at the office because we installed one here, and uh, we can list on PlugShare that this is a spot you can charge. Um, and I'm working with other business owners um, since I got the Tesla to uh, have them install them at their restaurants and things like that. It's actually it's a twofold thing. So it's encouraging kind of the green revolution of these cars, uh, but it also gives people a reason to stop by your place versus another place. And uh, there's different incentives in different states that will um, give you rebates for installing EV uh, charging stations at your restaurant, place of business, or whatever. So lots of coffee shops have them. Kroger's has one. That's a good um, idea. Yeah, yeah, the grocery store. When I go to the grocery store, I charge for free. So I just park it. Very parking. cool. Yeah, so don't cost me mm-hmm. that. Anyway, I'll get off that topic where I'll ramble on because I'm excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, though, for pointing out the charge. They're, they're pretty cool. Uh, listener Dave uh, sent us a response. Um, a, couple, a couple weeks ago, he was asking about using a Raspberry Pi for something kind of like a dash cam. Mm-hmm. And in episode 310, uh, we discussed the Rode Apple Pi project in in all of its ridiculousness yes. of the name. Um, and we, we sent an email back to him, and he, he responds with, it seems interesting, um, but he found, he found a potential solution with FFmpeg. Um, and he links to a blog post uh, from FFmpeg where they record the sky during a storm to capture lightning. So a lightning strike happens in an instant. So you want to be recording continuously and, continuously and mm-hmm. buffering. And then when the lightning strike happens, you have that, that old buffer. And then you can go back and uh, splice that video out okay. or perform some sort of operation on it. Neat. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's just a uh, turnkey solution, but he's on the right path now, I believe. Very cool. That is cool. You know, when when I was looking into it deeper, uh, one thing that the maker uh, suggests you to do is to hook up a uh, real-time clock and a uh, power management hat. Like I, th- I think they make one that's a hat that has both in it at once. And at first you think, well, why do you need that? But being a road pie, it's going to be in your car, which turns on and off all the time, and it could just crash whatever it's doing at the time uh, and corrupt files. So power management will give it a a graceful shutdown. And then uh, you need the real-time clock because if you're not connected to the Internet, there's no NTP servers for it to check the Internet. Mm. Then all your timestamps on your videos and everything are going to be off. Uh, so you have a, a, the real-time clock running to be able to keep the time correct. That's a very good point. Yeah. 
And knowing when the lightning strike happens is an important piece. <laughs> <laughs> and probably you definitely want, which I, I laugh because you can buy like those little phone chargers, like the portable ones, like the po uh, power banks, but they make good UPSs for Raspberry Pis because Raspberry Pis being low powered, instant UPS. Because if you're dealing with lightning strikes, power goes out. <laughs> exactly. Yep, Some of I've those don't that. have enough output for Raspberry Pis, though. Um, if you get the. I believe it's Anchor makes the high quality ones. That's the ones yeah. I have. They're really nice. Uh, don't buy the off-brand ones. One, they, I feel as though some of them are dangerous. Mm -hmm. I've seen some melted pictures of them. Um, Anchor seems to make a higher quality product, and it's not that much more. I think I paid like forty dollars for my Anchor one, but it will. Uh, it's got enough output to charge one. It will fast charge phones, and it will also output and charge two phones simultaneously. Mm. Wow! I keep it in my bag because um, when I travel like to New York. I was taking lots of pictures, and the power did go out in New York. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, so, and I had my charger. Yeah, so the new ones are, or the I think the ones you talk about, it, it's two amp, right? Yeah. So I have one that does a two amp, but doesn't the Raspberry Pi four? Didn't they switch to USB C because yep. yep. it needs three amp now? And my Anchor one has the USB C on it with the extra output as well. And they, uh, and they don't follow the USB C spec on the Raspberry Pi four, so you can't use any Raspberry Pi or any uh, USB C charger on it because they have some kind of a flaw. Where it's not going to work properly. It, so if you're not using the actual, what's that? From what I heard, it's not. You, it's not that you can't use any. You can't use the the nice ones. The smart charging. The ones, smart chargers, like for yeah. a ThinkPad laptop, for right. instance, or oh, the Nintendo I've Switch. I've read that they didn't follow the USB-C spec, and they, only the Raspberry Pi branded charger actually has. Yeah, the that's because they didn't follow the spec. This mm. this should be fixed in the Pi Four first revision. It should be just adding a different resistor, I believe, uh, is what yeah. I heard. Yeah, I heard the same thing. They, they work similar to PoE where the resistor value sets the voltage because a voltage on a proper USB-C power supply is negotiated to a different voltage based on requirements. And a there's something like a resistor that sets the requirements that... Uh, make that happen. I remember reading into the spec because there was actually a Google engineer when the very first pixels were released that used USB-C, people were having problems with them. And mm. he took it upon himself as a hobby, just coincident, he worked in the Android engineer, so he had a lot of knowledge on it, uh, of reviewing cables and seeing which ones put the proper resistors in and which ones didn't. Uh, because when the whole slurry of USB-Cs were released, a lot of them were just junk. They were just not done properly because people weren't following spec, and he was kind of calling them out on that. That's right. That's actually what led me to Anchor. Anchor was one of the first companies that um, always sold a premium product, including their USB-C line of connectors. And they said, we completely follow the spec. We use this model resistor uh, so we don't screw up your phones. And it's one of those things like, what, do I save $4 on a cable and wreck a phone? <laughs> like, right. Yeah. The flagship phones are not cheap. I always buy quality cables for those. Anyways, is that all we have for listener feedback? I believe so. Yeah, that's all I saw. Yep. Uh, so moving on to the Distro Fever. Distro. So what do, what have you guys seen uh, that's coming out recently? So everyone keeps asking me about it, and maybe one day I'll do a review, but I just don't see it as a commercial product. Uh, OpenSense, I got to admit. So what they do to stand out, they're a fork of PFSense, and there's all kinds of bad blood between those people. The developers are like drama between each other. Um, my problem I have with the commercial use of OpenSense is there's a lot of updates. Um, but for a home user who says, I want bleeding edge, well, 
there's a lot of updates and there's WireGuard built in, there's Tor built in, I believe. Um, they have a lot of features um, that they've had. As a matter of fact, I believe they've also added zero tier networking as well. Wow. So they've just, they're on it in terms of constantly adding the latest, greatest features. It makes me kind of want to look at it. I, but the problem is when, from a business environment, um, updating firewalls and rebooting them, yeah, um, I prefer not to. And I don't have enough business users demanding WireGuard. Home users going, hey, I have a lower powered system. WireGuard's faster than OpenVPN. You are correct and you should use it, but it's not native to uh, PFSense. They've integrated all that in OpenSense. So it, I, I understand the use case for it. Mm-hmm. It's just not my use case, and I just don't like updating my firewall very often. I mean, that's just that's just the nature of it. That's a, that's a pain, especially clients. I mean, we have to really, with our transportation providers, we have to schedule it. They have a narrow downtime on uh, Saturdays where we can reboot something. So... Other ones with redundant firewalls, uh, you know, obviously it's easier, but still, that's... Yeah. But it's still it's a neat firewall project. I don't. It doesn't seem to have any security issues. It just they come out with a lot of features a lot, which requires a lot of updates. I don't think they have like a uh, two path either, like a stable or a long term support. You get one version mm-hmm. of it. So the good and bad that comes with that. Have you ever run the PFSense uh, beta version, or yeah. have you always stuck with stable? I've always stuck with stable for production. I've tried the beta. They're so. Um, slow to add features that even when you go to beta, other than I ran it for a while for the new interface, their beta right now doesn't offer much. There's not, they're under the hood features, like small performance tuning features they do right now. I don't think there's anything major about the new version. Um, Good and bad. They're super stable code people. That's very confident in a firewall. That's very uh, boring for me. I want to play with new toys. Um, so yeah. they're not the most exciting when I really talk much about their betas because of that. They their their feature updates are so minor. But like I said, that's what you kind of want out of a firewall. Going, I like to have the most stable because you know when you have these deployed to oh I don't know a few hundred customers, I don't need something unstable that would affect a few hundred customers that rely on uptime. Sure. Exactly. Yep. And we just put several of these in data centers with um, HA. So once again, their HA is outstanding. It's actually unlicensed free. They're using completely open source for the HA implementations. It's easy to do. And it blew people away because we just replaced a couple of Junipers. And a guy goes, you know how much licensing I paid with Juniper to have HA? And he hardly has any rules. He's got three inbound NAT rules. That's it. Mm. He, he just needs the HA. And we swapped it out for PFSense. And he's like, where you been all my life like we're not using any of the advanced filtering we don't need it he just listens to some sensors on the internet but those sensors are incredibly important so he's like redundant internet connections redundancy at the data center like (laughs) yeah and then open sense should have that exact same feature set correct i believe they do i don't know where that falls when it comes to certain implementations of whether or not they copied it fully and it's a little uh, fuzzy, so I've tried to do a comparison. I would have to really dive deep into it uh, to make sure it has exactly the same features. Because I don't, they <coughs> deviated like four years ago. So I don't know how much, if they are still even pulling from the original sources of PFSense, if at all. They may have forked it completely, and that's the part I kind of need to dive into. Uh, Proxmox Virtual Environment 6 was just released. Ooh. And I already did a video on upgrading to that, which I, I did, which is probably not as, well, actually, I know it's not as efficient as um, using XCPNG and upgrading from one release to another. It actually took a while and then somewhat manual. Um, but what's noteworthy about Proxmox 6, actually several things, there's a lot of new features. Uh, ZFS 
0.8.1 with native encryption and SSD trim support. That's pretty cool. But what's interesting to me is um, it's basically saying with QEMU 4.0, it says users can now use the web interface to live migrate guests with disks backed by local storage. Ooh. Now, that's interesting because, you know, in previous versions, you have to have shared storage for that, which means you have like a file server, NAS, or something in between, SAN, something like that. So this would, if I'm reading this right, mean that I could have two servers, local storage, no shared storage, and live migrate from one to the other. I would imagine that would take a very long time. I'm not really sure how that would work, but when I go to the documentation, which um, has a version number of six on the documentation, it still says that you need shared storage for live migration. So maybe they didn't update the documentation yet. I haven't been able to figure out how that actually works. Actually, that's a point of confusion for me right now. So... You couldn't, in 5, live migrate from two Proxmox servers unless they use shared storage? Right. Oh. Because that's actually a feature of XCPNG. Two servers that don't even know each other can do it. So does it just transfer the disk file from the storage from one to the other? Yeah, and and it it has the facility to do it live. Um, The only thing you need is the software to talk to both of them, but the servers don't have to know anything about each other. There's nothing you do. You don't have to join them in a pool. Well, what's interesting is it says users can now use the web interface to do this. Oh. So I almost wonder if it means that it did have that a way to do that, and then now it's easier to do. So maybe I'll just have to give this a shot and create a VM with local storage and just migrate it, just kind of see what happens. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll guess, you know, I, may, I am on VPN to my home network, so maybe while we're talking I'll just create a VM <laughs> on there and just see what happens. But. Uh, yeah, so I basically did a video on that, and I've been looking through the features, and there's a bunch. Oh, so cool. it's it's pretty cool. It's a good, awesome virtualization stack for um, home lab and business. You know, I don't know how they um, get listed in here. Maybe I'll mention it to the uh, doves because I talked to them. But uh, XCPNG, they're at release candidate one for um, 8.0, the new version. But it doesn't make the list in here. I mean, it's a fully open source. Yeah. It's it's a competitor, so to speak. Maybe I don't it's like just the word competitor. It's, just, it's an alternative to Proxmox. And maybe they just they're just not on their radar. Yeah, I'm sure somewhere. You know, I never looked. Maybe I'll look on after we're done and say, how do you submit a distribution here? Yeah, I saw that there was a, a new distro called the Network Security Toolkit. Well, maybe not new, but they have a new update. And this is the first time that I've ever heard of this. This, uh, this is, <coughs> excuse me, a Fedora 30 based distro um, running uh, kernel 5.1, and it's got all sorts of uh, network security tools such as Nmap, PuTTY, um, MTR, anything you could use for penetration testing, hmm. um, forensic analysis, uh, packet capturing, and and all of that. Now, what is really cool about this, and maybe this is from like a a movie hacker uh, perspective, when you when you boot the distro and you start using these tools, it will it will pull up like OpenStreetMaps or uh, a picture of Google Earth, and it will place uh, photos if they have geotags on them, or if you're pinging someone or MTRing someone, it will show you where on earth it thinks your traffic is going to. Oh, nice. And they they have tons and tons of screenshots for this, and I just think that's pretty nifty. 
I will admit this is the first time I've seen it built on a Fedora because uh, ParrotSec, which I'm using, or Kali Linux, which is another popular one, they're both uh, Debian-based. Parrot I like because it's a rolling distro, so it's it's also why I think it doesn't show up in here because they're always updating, so there's not... They do have release numbers, I think, so people can find them, you know, like 4.6 or whatever, but um, it's, uh, it's a nice security distribution as well. But I've never seen... That's the first one I've ever seen based on... Uh, based on Fedora. So that's really cool. Hmm. Deep in and, is mm. new as well. Mm-hmm. I, I already know Tony's probably going to point out Mint. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Deep in, if you haven't seen it, um, it's been the controversial distribution because it's developed in China. At one time, they had kind of sort of spyware in it. Uh, there's a lot of controversy around. If you type in Deep in spyware, you'll find two videos by a guy named uh, goes a YouTube channel called Quids Up. He dives into what it was doing and dives into the fact that they removed it. Um, they do seem to care about their community, um, but it's a different mental um, thought because the Chinese are like, well, why wouldn't we send data to our government, our beloved China? Um, and, and our thing is like, no, we start with privacy and please ask me before you send data mm-hmm. is the kind of the general thing of uh, the way Linux works, or at least the Linux community here in America works. We we don't mind giving data. I will participate in package share basing as you asked me. I will, but if you don't ask me and start doing it, I'm going to be really angry. Looking at you, Ubuntu, and you integrated Amazon, <laughs> which well, they later removed as well. Yeah, <laughs> that that had some very interesting search results in the application. Yeah, like I, went, I meant to open Calculator. Oh, look, calculators are on sale for five ninety nine Prime. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I want to see in my application menu. So I was happy yeah. when they removed that. But Tony is the Mint lover, so uh, what's new yeah. in Mint? Well, Mint, it's the beta release, so uh, it's uh, the 19.2. And um, so there's, a, there's just some minor, you know, updates and stuff, no, nothing big. Um, Seems like but, it took them a really long time to even get to the beta phase this time around. Like, normally they're right on the spot. I, I, there was this article and I was going to talk about it in the news, but I decided not to because I don't like to share clickbait articles, but they were talking about some, or how the Mint project is having issues and slowing down. I don't know if that's true, but then considering it's like, what, three months after 1904 came out, usually they kind of, even though they don't, they stay on LTS, they align pretty much to Ubuntu. It's been a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, getting this out, so I thought that was interesting. Like, I I had my sponsor pay for an ad in the Linux Mint 19.2 final release that I still haven't been able to give them yet because it hasn't come out yet. So mm. it's been taking a really long time. It's mm. kind of weird. Yeah, but I don't know. Maybe they have some pressure from other distros or something. All right, that's all I've seen on the distro. Who all wants right. to start with the news? The news. Uh, I guess I'll start with a couple articles I found. So, hackers breach the SFB contractor to expose the Tor denomination project. Uh, so, uh, do you know what the FSB is? Yes. So it's the Russian uh, intelligence service. So yeah. it's not frontside. It's it's not frontside. No, front it's the Russian equivalent of the NSA for our uh, American listeners and whatever three-letter scary agency your country has. Um, <laughs> right. It's it's the FSB. Think of them as the KGB, but for digital stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which so I think that's not the same people. Just like the NSA, uh, the FSB uh, employs contractors to do some of their work, and this contractor called Cytec. It's S-Y-T-E-C. Can you call them henchmen? 
<laughs> Probably. Uh, they were hacked, and uh, uh, they exposed some of the tools that uh, the FSB has been working on. Uh, so one is called Nautilus, and it's a project for collecting data about social media users, such as Facebook. Then they use they put MySpace in here. Why do does that, does that even exist? Does that anymore? exist? Yeah. Unfortunately, it does. Right. In some sort of broken oh, state. Wow. And the history history of MySpace is important because it still goes on to metadata to build people you're connected with. I suppose so. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's a Nautilus S, which is the denomination for Tor projects. Uh, so, not only is the NSA working on things like that, uh, other governments are also. Yeah, um, how they were doing it is, uh, they, they, what do they call them? Poison onions or rotten onions? Something like that. I, there's an f- article you can read about how they were doing it. Um, basically, they were gathering. So Tor is a three-node option. So the entrance node knows who you are. The exit node doesn't. The middle node is that methodology by which it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, so the middle node only knows enough to get the data back and forth but doesn't know who you are or where it's going but has a way of doing it so it's really hard to peel the onion apart to figure out how tor works it's really complicated math but trust me it does work so the way you figure it out is by having enough nodes you make some assumptions um you can send pings across for example from one site to another look at the latency and start deferring what nodes people are coming in and out of so i see the exit node i can see the exit node and i see it go down to the internet I can use deference because I have so much metadata to determine where it's coming from. There was a really interesting computer file uh, YouTube video of, from a high-level overview of what Tor does. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's mm-hmm. uh, One of the best explanations was a few years ago, and you can find it in the archive of the Security Now podcast. Uh, Steve Gibson does a deep dive into the technology behind Tor and exactly how the math works that drives it. It's a great listen. Um, I need to re-listen to it again because I want to do another Tor explainer. And the EFF has a beautiful um, graphic that animates how mm. Tor works uh, to show you what privacy levels it has compared to VPN. So nice. it's not impossible, but it's extremely difficult to de-anonymize Tor. It takes someone the size of nation-state actor because they have to spin up so many nodes to do it. And they're doing it all with difference, uh, which is actually good because this kind of gives you confidence that um, – you're hard to find on Tor. If you want to know how good it is in privacy, it takes a nation-state actor to try to get at it. So you have to have to make them angry. To They have to look for you specifically. It's not a blanket de-anonymizer. Right. Uh, one of the other projects they have in this article is called HOPE. And it's a project to investigate the topology of the Russian Internet and how it connects to the other countries. So this uh, reminds me that just... Didn't they just... Uh, yes, they did. Recently they passed a law saying... That um, or that that they have to put in place to be able to shut off the internet to the entire country. Well, yes, they're working on it, and they ran a series of experiments of turning off the internet there um, to localizing it, which was very interesting. So by doing this localization of the internet, um, which turns out is really really hard to do. Years ago, our government tried doing it. Um, this was like circa 2001. It was a talk given at a conference I was at, a uh, hacking conference. But one of the things in the, the contractor there was part of doing it. It turns out they couldn't figure out how to do it. 2001, they become so interconnected, they couldn't get the U.S. Naval Network offline. It was always finding another route that they forgot about. And uh, hmm. 18 years later, we just have to 
like you just don't plug the thing into anything on the network because somehow this network figures out how to get to the internet. Um, and I think Russia is trying to is probably running at that same discovery model of wow we've interconnected and interwoven this. There's so many exit points and entrance points that if you shut off one section, it routes back over here. We forgot we connected this box. 20 years ago and it's still hooked up and routing right. uh, so it's it's not it's a non-arbitrary task to try and take a country offline comcast can take a business offline like nobody's business that, oh. they got that figured out <laughs> but country level much harder well the Verizon did break two percent of the internet we talked about that last time so Verizon, they should just contact Verizon. they'll shut they'll shut it down by accident <laughs> wow but um, I, my other side note on this particular topic is they also defaced the um, – did some trolling and defaced their website. And I got to say, um, hacking Russians and then taunting them just feels like a physically bad idea. Like they, they would physically do something to you if they figure out who you are. You're not just like, oh, I'm going to face some time in jail for defacing. I feel as though physically you will vanish Mm-hmm. <laughs> if they decide if they figure out who these people are <laughs> physically defaced yeah they physically they will physically deface you i feel like <laughs> yeah i thought that was i'm like they taunted them that's not i don't think you're facing jail time they don't worry about when you mess with them i'm just talking about them. maybe i have a different perspective maybe i've watched too many uh movies <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh certainly interesting uh for sure they're really trying to break our privacy so the next article i have is Slack to reset passwords for tens of thousands of users. Uh, so I think we talked about this a uh, couple months ago where Slack uh, released that they had a hack uh, in uh, disclosure yeah, in 2015. And now they go through and say, you know what? We should probably force some people to reset their passwords. So they have 100,000 users, and they're resetting about 1% of those passwords uh, that they're pretty sure was part of that uh, hack from before. Uh, so if you're trying to get back into your Slack and you can't get in, it's because they reset it and you don't have to just go through the password reset process. Hmm. Which is interesting. And um, we talked about this on how they got a hack channel. We think part of the ways they realize maybe they thought part, certain databases weren't compromised, but now they know they were. And uh, the term is honey tokens. Uh, there's probably a bunch of users that weren't real but that's how you when you know your database um, may be breached you add some honey tokens to it and that's how you can tell how they breached it because like that user only existed not for real but we put a fake user in there so we could find if we ever find this username and password combination we added it there that means we know that was from our database Mm -hmm. because a lot of problems is when these databases are sold in the dark web they're collections of email addresses and passwords but they don't necessarily say where they're from yeah but that helps you identify like, oh that was from me um, that's a, it's a common um, technique used in a lot of the corporate places. We had a fun discussion about that. So, Yeah. So the last one I have is uh, QuickBooks cloud hosting firm INSYNQ was hit by ransomware attack. Uh, so QuickBooks, we've all probably have dealt with it at one point or yeah. know somebody that has. Yeah. Unfortunately. And, mm-hmm. uh, the only Monday. time I've dealt with it <laughs> was the install, like what you install on a computer. Uh, but now they're going away from that and going to the cloud-based. So you log in through the web and run it. Well, one of their providers that runs that cloud-based is this uh, INS uh, N or I N uh, yeah. Anyway, NSYNC. so is it? Yeah, I don't know. Is it in sync? We'll, we'll see in sync. 
All right. Like the band, but spelled with a Q. <laughs> <laughs> so they, um, they've been hit by uh, the ransomware attack, and uh, Krebs uh, talks about it a little bit in his article. So um, we host um, this type of QuickBooks. What you do is, uh, for those wondering, it's an enterprise version of QuickBooks. You buy a license for it, and that license um, it starts at around seven or $8,000 a year and goes up from there. Right? So it's a slightly different version of QuickBooks. Uh, and then you put it on a terminal server, and then you can allow multiple people to log into their instances of QuickBooks so they get all the features. Um, we've, we actually maintain the servers for some accounting firms that do this. It's, it's an interesting process, but it's all Windows-based. It's actually not a – I don't know about this particular one, but it's not a web panel. They actually log in, like, through RDP. Um, and these users, uh, this is where our headaches come in, they always want to run local applications on things, and they want often to have their email loaded on the terminal server. Oh, no. This way they can log in remotely and email out invoices and things like that, but that also opens them up. We don't allow it on ours. Um, we tell them, and they hate this, um, but we make them print to a PDF printer across, and then they have to get the files back across RDP, because RDP, the new versions, share printers, uh, which is fine. We won't let them load their email, mm-hmm. which is a, the, the accounting firm's with us, but the clients go around and call us to try to get, well, can't I load my Outlook on here? Can't I go in my Yahoo email? And we're like, no. You will crypto locker this thing. You will click on everything. So yeah. right. that's undoubtedly how it happened. A long time ago at a, at a particular job I had, um, I had some Perl scripts to do just that. It was a Windows VM running uh, the terminal server version of uh, QuickBooks, and then every employee had a Mac, and there was a Perl script that could sync all of these files for them just at, at a click of a button. And that was pretty nice. Yeah. Having, there's better ways to set it up. I, I loathe QuickBooks. It is built on the horrible, not the um, open source web version cool stuff, but the old horrible .NET framework um, that loads on computers. And it's it's like a giant house of cards. .NET framework breaks a lot, and when it breaks, QuickBooks breaks with it. And it's a pain in the butt product to stand up. That's why it gets run in these uh, large terminal server environments, uh, just so you can maintain it easier, because it takes a tech to maintain. An update breaks it all the time. It's um, it's our Monday headache, as I, I'm i not joking when I say on Monday, there's always a ticket for QuickBooks. Can't get in, can't log in, can't do something with it. I it's, deal with the same thing. Yeah, you're <laughs> going to have fun with it. It's great. <laughs> we, have to, we have a dummy user we have to keep open that has higher privileges than the general users that's their own solution to it you just leave it open in another terminal session uh, so they don't get the update notice that way the update notice goes to the admin because if they don't have admin privilege and they get an update notice they can't click it and it locks out every subsequent user yep. that tries to log in yep, uh, I deal with that too Yeah, that's how horribly Jeez. written the software is oh and by the way the 6000 is the starting price before you get features my client's spending like twenty or $30,000 a year for the software that we have to have a dummy admin set up and to, to not click yes. $6,000 isn't that much to pay to just lose your sanity if that's what you want to do, right? Just <laughs> just, just lose your money and your sanity yeah, at the same time? First they have time. licensing fees, and then they have our hosting fees, and then they have our service fees on top of it. By the way, that's why I wow. bought a Tesla of QuickBooks hosting. Just <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a real thing. You can do this between Outlook breaking and that. Like, that's what paid for my Tesla. <laughs> I we recommend wow. not using those products, but I'll quit ranting about them. <laughs> uh, all right, so that's all I had. So I have, I have a few. And first of all, a quick aside. So while we were talking, I did create a VM on Proxmox and set it up and did a live migration from local storage. And 
It took five minutes, eight seconds. Didn't skip a single ping. Now, mind you, it's going over gigabit. Yeah. But it's SSD to SSD, so that's nice. good. I think the gigabit Ethernet was probably the bottleneck there, but five minutes, eight seconds. It gave me a warning saying, oh, this could take a long time. Okay, whatever. I yeah. clicked the button anyway, and then it actually allowed me to do it. So well, very cool. cool. That was um, a great feature. And that is the it, most it is. magical thing of technology. When people ask me what I think the most magic is of 23 years in tech, I was, I was in a podcast interview, and I say, watching things live migrate. I know exactly how it works, but, like, everything about that is so awesome. Like, it is. I've always dealt with physical hardware. Now I can, like, pass this running machine. We've done live migration. We brought, during the day, during production, brought a new server in, set it up, and slowly started moving their machines over. And I'm like, this... Like, this was a scheduled downtime. I remember working on New Year's Eve because it was the only time we could be down when I worked in a company so we could physically switch servers and shit things. We just, oh, I was going to migrate you to that other version. <laughs> yeah, it is. And the first time I heard someone talk about this, I'm like, that's just not possible. You're, you're, I don't know where yes. you read this, but that just, that just can't happen. That, so this is a very is... early in my career, but I'm like, that can't happen. Yeah, and, I, and unicorns are real too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then I read about it and I'm like, oh, yeah, it is a, a real thing, and you can actually do I mean, this. I couldn't invent this before I spent New Year's Eve doing this. It's <laughs> amazing. Absolutely amazing. So developers devising plan to ship newer NVIDIA drivers on Ubuntu stable releases. So by stable, they're talking about LTS, so 1804. So there's this stable release update mechanism that Ubuntu has that allows them to uh, give you a newer version of a program you normally wouldn't get since it's a locked repository. Normally they just want security updates and don't want like you know feature updates because they want to keep it stable. But that's how you get the latest Firefox and Chromium on Ubuntu 18.04 is it goes through the same process and they're looking. It's looking like they're going to make the Nvidia drivers part of the same thing. Oh, cool. So. People that uh, play games will get the latest drivers, and um, which that, which is kind of confusing because they are already kind of doing this because the hardware enablement stack updates every um, I don't know how how often, but uh, basically after there's a new non-LTS release from point three higher, they'll backport the newer kernel video drivers. So they, it looks like they're actually separating that, or they're giving you the NVIDIA drivers outside of that probably more frequently now it's still going to take a couple of months for it to go through the channels because it has to go through a proposed repository first it's got to spend some time there before you actually get it so if you want the latest drivers today well you're going to have to wait so you're not going to get it immediately but it's cool to know that you'll still get the new features eventually so i think that's really great uh, especially for nvidia users because um, i mean you, you don't want to go to best buy or micro center or whatever buy the latest GeForce GPU, and then find out, well, you know, I'm going to have to wait six months before the driver is backported, yeah. or I'm going to have to download the driver manually, or worse, get a PPA on my system and risk breaking things. So to go through a, a, a process to get that Good. on your system. So I think that's a step in the right direction there. I just, by coincidence, maybe it's related. Um, I didn't look at the notes. I just update all the time, and I noticed there's a lot of NVIDIA updates for uh, Pop! OS this morning when I was updating my computer. Now, they do... They do that anyway. Okay. Pop! OS has been giving the latest NVIDIA drivers newer than Ubuntu um, for a while. So I'm interested to see how they're going to handle this because maybe that's just something they won't have to do anymore. They won't have to maintain that in their repositories anymore because Ubuntu is doing it. But then again, they also have non-LTS releases too, so they're going to probably have to keep doing that in some kind of capacity. But Pop! OS is way friendlier from a uh, gaming perspective than Ubuntu. Now, Ubuntu is great for gaming if you're Linux gaming. 
Pop! OS is just a little bit better because they give you even more stuff. I, yeah, I was, when I did those uh, game reviews and we loaded Steam on it, I'm like, this just works. Like, I didn't right. do, as a matter of fact, I specifically, one of my employees who plays games but doesn't play with Linux much, I, he set it up. I, that was on purpose, like a noob's review of it. And he's like, well, this just worked. I didn't expect yep. it, like, no command lines. Just download or, the NVIDIA version of Pop! OS. And right you're, you go. you're done. Mm-hmm. You're all set. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you're good. So that's good news there. And then quick note, I don't know if this was mentioned before, I don't think so. System76 is now offering Ryzen CPUs on their uh, Thelio oh, desktops. Yay. And When it gets to the laptops of Ryzen, that's when it might be time to upgrade. I really, it really makes me wish I had one of these. I, I, I obviously can't justify that. I have a really great desktop. But... Um, some of these are really pricey, but their their uh, base model starts at like nine ninety nine, I think, and you can get it with a Ryzen CPU, which is pretty sweet. So if you uh, wanted to check that out, then that's available. And their Thelio desktops look amazing. Um, I remember the first time I saw them, which is probably a year or two before anyone else saw them, because I was actually at System76 seeing these while they were designing them and the um, betas that they had out. Uh, they're, they're really great machines. Uh, they look amazing. Very cool. We saw one at PenguinCon. Yeah. So that was that was the first time I actually saw the finished version. It, and it was being life. delivered to, um, what's his name? Eric S. Raymond. Eric S. Raymond. Yeah. Mm. It was we were, his personal machine. So. It, was, it was crazy awesome really high spec machine on that one and what else do i have uh let's see and the last one i have is uh, ubuntu 2004 is planning for a new means of automated installations so there it's kind of more of a proposal so there's no code yet but they're trying to get this ready for 2004 where you could have a yaml file to serve as if you remember kickstart and those types of things i I think it's going to be kind of similar to that where you could define your installation in a YAML format to kind of like um, automate the installation of an Ubuntu server. Sounds like cloud in it. Very yeah. cool. Well, um, I'm trying to think because I think I'm not sure if this is going to be like cloud in it or because I think they use cloud in it, but I wonder if this is going to be more like answering the questions during the install process. Yeah, like I just, an, I, I, that's what it sounded like to me when I yeah. kind of skimmed through the article uh, that you'll be able to, like, here's the parameters. Yes, next, set me to the Detroit time zone, set the username, right. encrypt the hard drive, set this password, get me deployed. Now, for cloud in it, I would think that that would kind of take effect after you have installed it, you boot it for the very first time, and that lets you set the keys. And yes, that's correct. Um, Hence, it just sounds like it, but yeah. still very, very cool. Same concept. Yeah, because you bring up an inter- interesting point, Phil, because it's kind of like, where, where does one end and the other begin? We, where do you draw the line between, you know, we have this YAML file that you, you use to customize your installation, and then you have another piece that does other things. Um, cloud in it is kind of the standard, and I'm thinking the YAML thing will be more along the lines of just getting through the installation, just setting maybe a default I username. I think it's like the, the, the like step said, time before zone. versus uh, where CloudInit, like you said, is on first boot. Yeah, but it would be cool if you could have a CloudInit config file in there, and it would just feed it into CloudInit well, when it boots. Now we then... automate everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I use CloudInit, and I like it a lot. It's just one of those things where there's not a ton of documentation, and the documentation there is is kind of hard to follow in mm. my opinion but I, I've pieced it together I've figured it out for the most part I've had people ask me how I do it like with my XEPNG because it offers it but I'm like I just don't really use the cloud in it I just build my templates and save them and then fork everything off of those as I need it do you regenerate the host SSH keys on yours 
Yeah, I'll just, and it's a manual process. Oh. But I don't do them enough. I'm not doing, like, 100 servers, so some of those things don't bother me much. Like, if I, I guess I would probably have to get better at it if I was doing it. Most of the time I'm doing it for demo yeah. stuff, so it's less important to me that I even bother with that part at all. So I just go, I'm going to demo how to set up this particular tool on this software, and then when I'm done, I destroy it, and I'm back to the base. Yeah, that's a good point. So, um, yeah, I haven't had a chance to catch up on the news completely yet, so this is about yeah. all I was able to find for this. Phil's got a couple things. Yes, I do. Um, I have uh, a message from uh, a CertBot maintainer. Um, a, they are looking for help with the Debian uh, and Ubuntu PPA, uh, specifically porting DNS plugins from Debian into newer versions of Ubuntu. Um, he states that some of the DNS plugins have been broken for months, and the current maintainers, uh, the current Debian uh, packagers are being unresponsive. So if you have any expertise uh, with Debian or Ubuntu packaging, please reach out to uh, the CertBot team. You can go to certbot.org. Just send an email. Um, hmm. And as far as news goes, uh, I found uh, this article from OS Technics about a tool called Game Mode. It's a tool to improve gaming performance on Linux. Ooh. So this, this Game Mode is a daemon in a library that optimizes your uh, Linux system by by running several tweaks, such as setting the CPU governor to performance mode, so instead of having to waste uh, nanoseconds scaling up and down for power consumption reasons, you just get full CPU power all the time. Uh, it will address process niceness, um, I.O. priority, kernel scheduling, it'll turn off the screensaver, and this will just help you squeeze every single little bit of performance out of uh, your OS for gaming. I thought that was kind of cool. If I'm um, not mistaken, I think you. I think they're trying to um, say you can, like the game themselves can build that into the game. So you run the game and it runs game mode yes. automatically. So, because at first I was thinking that was something, well, I'm going to just run this thing in the background. Now I'm going to start the game. But when I read an article, it kind of seemed like the game itself will run that. So you don't even have to like install that. Several games have support for that. Um, I was thinking about using this uh, when I start Steam. Mm -hmm. So that way anything that gets launched uh, through Steam should also take advantage of this. You should be able to put it as a uh, pre-command for the game before it runs. That's a good point. Yeah, like, like it should be somewhere in there, like, before you run the game, run this first. then Ramp that thing up. Yep. yep. <laughs> and game mode can be installed via apt, snaps, flat packs. Uh, oh, all the all, options. All of the options. Um, and then moving on to more gaming-related news, uh, tangentially, uh, Epic Games has awarded um, the Blender Tool uh, company with $1.2 million. Um, That's exciting. Yes. Uh, these funds will be provided to Blender over the course of three years and allow the company to grow its internal tooling. Um, the Blender Foundation founder and chairman Tan Rusendahl states, having Epic Games on board is a major milestone for Blender. Thanks to the grant, we will make a significant investment in our project organization to improve onboarding, coordination, and best practices for code quality. As a result, we expect more contributors from the industry to join our projects. 
And then Tim Sweeney, founder and CEO of Epic Games, states, open tools, libraries, and platforms are critical to the future of the digital content ecosystem. Blender is an enduring resource within the artistic community, and we aim to ensure its advancement to the benefit of all creators. So do we turn the hate level down a notch on Epic Games? Temporarily. Temporarily. Mm-hmm. They, they will, they will um, find, we'll find a reason to hate them next week. Don't worry. <laughs> I mean, they will, they will do something hate-worthy. It's not like we need to find. They'll, they'll do a reason. So <laughs> they do not always treat gamers nicely. We'll just throw it out there. We don't need to rant about it, but yeah. I'm happy they're doing this. I love to see that they recognize it. Um, and if you haven't used Blender, it's an amazing project, uh, but it's a complicated project. You can actually do video editing, 3D rendering, and all kinds of fancy stuff, uh, but then you can also spend two hours trying to figure out how to make that stupid cube demo work. <laughs> I I have I have attempted to do that back when I was a teenager. I've also made a gingerbread man um, <laughs> cool. a long, long, long time ago. It takes and some it, commitment to learn. It did. Yes, it did. Hopefully... As time has gone on, and now, especially with this grant, hopefully that whole process be- can become easier for a newbie. Yeah, they need uh, better connecting to the tooling because it's kind of an overly manual process to do it. But for those that know Blender, um, that do it like for a living and use things, it's it's a great tool. They they sing its praises quite a bit, but it's just there's a steep learning curve to get into it. Uh, and in my day to day work. Um, I do a lot of data processing. Auk and SED are my go-to tools. Um, and I found this blog called Bashing Data, Data Operations on the Linux Command Line. I like it. And uh, this this person has a muggle's guide to Auk arrays and using Auk to do all sorts of uh, fancy data manipulation, um, including making arrays, parsing data out of files based on other files, um, Filtering, uh, very, very, very interesting stuff. If you do any sort of uh, data manipulation, bird watching with awk and grab. There's some great articles on here. <laughs> <laughs> this is neat. And the last thing that I found, it's called Evil Gnome. So Evil Gnome oh, is yeah. a piece of malware that masquerades itself as a gnome extension, and a gnome extension is a program that lets gnome users extend the functionality of their desktops. So what Evil Gnome will do is it will take screenshots of your desktop, it will steal files, it will capture audio recordings from the user's microphone, and download and execute arbitrary programs. So the attack vector is a user still has to install a script with uh, escalated privileges. And you also have to be running the Gnome desktop. So if you don't run Gnome, then this is of no concern to you. Um, so uh, a typical install route would be uh, su- uh, curling and then piping through uh, sudo bash, which a lot of a lot of installation guides for things like the Ruby package manager uh, will will have you do because it's very very nice and easy to provide a one liner to install my piece of software, but if you don't look at the software you're installing or attempt to read the script, you could get these various pieces of malware on your system. This is So this is really nothing new. Um, review the code before you run it. Don't just blindly copy and paste off the internet. But it is something new to worry about if you do have that habit. Hmm. Uh, that's all the news uh, from me. Do you have anything, Tom? I got a couple things. 
So, uh, I had also had that story about uh, Tony had had, though. That was that was mm-hmm. the first thing I was reading this morning. Uh, Kate and Live, 1904-3 is out. Tons of bug fixes. So there's not really many features to talk about, but once again, um, anyone who runs this software does any video editing, it can be a little bit of a crash monster occasionally under certain circumstances. Uh, it's, it's like the old days of using a computer. Hit that control S and save a lot. I do that uh, frequently. So yeah. I have to do it a little less frequently, but muscle memory will keep me saving as I go. It's gotten much better over the years, but this is another bug fix release. This is something I've only found this morning, but really excited to try. It is how to mirror and control your Android phone using, I'm going to call it uh, Scrappy, S-C-R- uh, S-C-R-C-P-Y. Now, this is cool. This is Android 5 and higher. You can turn on uh, the USB ADBO feature, plug this in your computer, and it mirrors even with your screen off. Uh, so you can control in a window um, your Android phone. So hmm. I thought this was kind of novel because now I don't have to look at my phone. I can bring my phone to my desktop if I wanted to. But it actually is going to make recording a lot easier when I have to show the things that are done on an Android phone, like when I'm oh, explaining yeah. MFA or how the app may interact with the desktop. Uh, being able to have that in a window off to the side is actually going to be a really cool feature, and it's free, open source. Um, I've actually done this with paid tools before, and more painfully I've had to use like screen recording where I record another video file on my phone of what's going on on the screen. Most of all, this does not require rooting your phone. Any previous one always required rooting your phone, which I try to avoid um, because I don't want to have that extra exposure of having root privileges on my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so this all works like that. And it's all open source and free and works with Linux. So that's an exciting project there. Taking cool. a look at their uh, GitHub page, they are actively maintained. Oh, yeah, they're being very actively maintained. So that's uh, other exciting. Now, we talked about the Pinebook last time, and now we have a first look at the Pinebook Pro video demoing 4K video and external monitor and running WebGL. And this comes back to the Pinebook being that it's an ARM-based system um, that's going to be released. They're actually going to be shipping in a couple days now, so I think in two or three days when they start shipping these. Uh, So this is exciting. Like we mentioned, Raspberry Pi 4, these ARMs are getting inexpensive and very powerful so you're able to run browsers and run 4k video on this this is uh impressive they have a video demo of it of the uh guy who owns pinebook showing off the features and that so that's really cool i pretty soon arm's going to be a a pretty competitive replacement laptop it may not be the gaming system but for daily usage i kind of want to pick one of these pinebooks up because it may be like the security laptop that we have when we go to clients like it has a load of all security yeah. tools on it. It's low powered, lightweight. It's one ninety nine. I mean, uh-huh. that's that's a great price for that. Configure um, some switches with it. Be great for that. Yeah. Uh, Lib input one point one four RC arrives with better thumb detection and Canvas Totem support. Uh, this is really interesting, and I'm thinking we may get more interest in this because we've got tools like Credo that artists use, but right away people will tell you, oh, I like this whatever input device. And that, of course, locks them back into the Windows world very quickly if they're using non-standard tablets or uh, different input devices. So the Dell Canvas Totem is a set-on-the-screen, touchscreen passive device that allows you to manipulate tools and things like that. And they have now added support in the uh, Linux world for it. this is actually kind of cool, too, because I also have problems with thumb detection. So when I'm typing, sometimes your thumb brushes up against the, uh, 
and Phil's making a face right now because his thumb is brushed mm-hmm. up against and put the cursor in the wrong place. Uh, so that's the cool general benefit, but they're adding very specific support for different types of tablets. Uh, so that's definitely really exciting that that's uh, coming along. I'm hoping that uh, stays as a theme so all these cool, fancy devices will be able to work with Linux. Speaking of uh, AMD and Ryzen, like we were talking about earlier, and being power efficient, there was obviously some concerns because newer Linux distributions had some boot problems with it, but it took them, and this is from AMD sending out the fix to even the motherboard manufacturers getting a BIOS update seven days to solve some of these uh, edge cases where Linux was not booting on the newest Zen 2 version of the processor. Uh, So AMD's commitment to the Linux world is serious. And of course, the motherboard people realize too, you guys are running Linux on this. So they followed the pipeline and seven day turnaround for a BIOS update is impressive because mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I still don't have BIOS updates for problems with you know old motherboards and they <laughs> probably never will. Um, so that's good. I like the commitment that AMD has to that. So that's uh, pretty cool. And a local story here, and I, I love the website as well. There's videos and everything go in there, but it's opensourceleg.com. And this is right at University of Michigan. It's a great website. It's a great website. This is pretty cool. Open Source Bionic Lady, first of its kind platform, aims to rapidly advance prosthetics. And uh, I am actually going to be asking my stepson about this. He is uh, a one-leg person who works at University of Michigan. He's a Hmm. uh, veteran. And I did make the joke, uh, because he's got a great sense of humor after he lost his leg. I was like, oh, you're a foot shorter the last time I seen you, so... (laughs) (laughs) And, and he has unplugged my phone from the charger. He goes, I have to charge my leg and took it off. That's a thing, too. Um, I've learned a lot about this uh, through this. Uh, and he does. He actually works for the veterans organization over there to help other soldiers that have lost legs and limbs and uh, through rehabilitation. But uh, this is kind of neat because the, these things are very proprietary. I, I was, of course, curious about them, but they're very, there's just not information. So making all this open source uh, makes it very accessible. Uh, we've already seen companies like, uh, I think it's is it called Enable, and it, that is the place mm-hmm. that prints 3D hands for, um, in 3D hand prosthetics outside of the U.S. Uh, for people to make it more affordable for them to get a prosthetic rim uh, for, for either because they lost a limb and things like that. So this is going to further that uh, because obviously prosthetic limb, 3D printing it, cool, it's a stationary thing, but we want action and function and being able to go full bionic, uh, we can build the bionic man, but he's going to be open source. <laughs> I remember being a, an enthusiastic. You, if you guys are old enough? Well, Tony is at least. Tony's my age. Mm-hmm. Um, you remember the Bionic Man? Did you ever watch that? I didn't watch it. I know what show you're talking yeah. about, though. I always it was cool because you always talk about like cybernetics, and this was an 80s show. It was really cheesy. I'm sure I remember it being more glorious than it was. <laughs> <laughs> Which might make it more glorious now. Yeah. So, anyways, it was really cool. Um, and don't ask why, ask why not. I'm going to turn the sound on to play this to see if anyone can identify what this noise I'm going to make is. Uh, is the video play? Oh, where would the video go? Do you take it down? There it is. So. That matrix printer? So that is the um, typewriter style one. This is a, uh, it turns out, someone, this uh, Matt Linz does some classic computer stuff and uh, can be, build some interfaces. And he built an interface between an old uh, 
what is this actually the model of this is a Lorenz L015 um, like basically the old typewriters use a serial port and this thing is probably from the 70s mm. and he's doing that instead of a Linux terminal display so he interfaced the output of Linux terminal display <laughs> to this um, oh, it has an instructional video so this is don't ask why ask why not I mean who doesn't want to see their terminal output commands and sent in through an old like it's got the swinging arms type typewriters uh, what it's making that noise it's not the ball head like the IBM one this goes back before wow, that that's great wow. um, yeah. but he's got an instruction how he did it and how he breadboarded it together and I got a link to the post on there and it's uh, just kind of novel it's more I like thought. an actual teletype terminal yeah like an old teletype terminal I That's learned cool. how to type on an old uh, printer like that I had an old typewriter too hmm. yeah um, he apparently works for the is it uh Dator Museum at Preserves and Restores Old Computers. Our collection includes a number of historic computers, peripherals from a multitude of different vendors. Um, it's cool. They've got, you know, old digital VAX. Looks like I see some PDP-11s in there. Um, it's kind of neat looking at it. I'm not a person who, you know, uh, says like uh, the good old days, I'm, but I'm still fascinated by old technology because it's seeing how that was built and then seeing what we have now. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. So I think there's a lot of value sometimes in doing this. Um, you can actually watch if you want. Uh, AT&T has released their archive of old videos and easy to find if you type in like AT&T. Um, they're old click and bang phone systems, and they're filmed from the day when the technology was new. So there's enthusiasm. They're black and white videos transferred over to YouTube, um, and there's a lot of enthusiasm when they came up with the first when they started replacing the operators. Mm. Um, and they call them click and bang systems, and it's how the rotary system works, and they have entire demos. They're all in black and white, but they're actually filmed rather well, um, and you can find that. It's kind of fun to see how mm. that old system worked. And, and the enthusiasm, because they're talking, this is the latest technology. They're not being sarcastic. It was when they filmed it. <laughs> so, And that's all I have for the news. I actually have one more thing to add. Uh, have you guys heard of BarCamp? No. So mm -hmm. BarCamp is a uh, community-run uh, conference where people get together. It's kind of like the unconference. Okay. Where, or I guess this is an unconference where there's no schedule. You show up. Well, I mean, there's a schedule of when things start, but there's no, like, speaker schedule. You show up, you sign up to uh, to give a talk, and then people, are you, they're, uh, or so either you sign up, you say, I want to give the talk, and then they let you do it. Uh, there's a voting uh, way, so you write it on the whiteboard, and people come through and put plus signs next to it, and then the ones that get the most plus signs, you know, are on the schedule, and... Uh, and it's pretty fun. Uh, so there's a Grand Rapids one coming up uh, in just a couple weeks. In, really? Uh, August 9th. Okay. Uh, it's free to attend. And they Because they have uh, sponsors, then they have uh, food for free. And oh, cool. You, and you just camp out in the uh, in the campus or in the uh, school, like, hallways and stuff. Yeah. It's, um, this one's at uh, the... Calvin College in Grand Rapids. Okay. Um, well, that's cool. So, yeah. So, if we have some local listeners, or maybe we have some Grand Rapids listeners, it's in your backyard. That's right. But I suggest uh, to do some Googling and find one in your area and, and join them. It's been yeah. pretty fun. This Grand Rapids one's been around for 14 years. Oh, wow. And Make sure I you leave a link in the show notes so we can give them a shout. Yep, I put it in there. Um, I went to the second one. It was really cool, and then just every year after that, it's been like my family's been camping or something, and I've uh, never been able to go again. You gonna go to this one? But uh, I hope so, because actually my camping is in uh, Lansing, which is about an hour from Grand Rapids or hour and a half. 
I might so go. I might be able to run over there for uh, half a day or, or a full day on Saturday or something. That might be cool. Yeah. Especially you're only an hour away. And I may, um, there's a supercharger there. I already know. Hey. I've looked. <laughs> <laughs> and I still, you get to, I have a thousand miles uh, of supercharging for free. So I don't, I haven't been paying. It tells me what I would have paid. That's how I know how much it costs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, I think that's it then. Yeah, we've come to yeah. the end of the We're show. giving you the 311. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't indecently expose you, I hope. <laughs> uh, so you've been listening to the, to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. Uh, this was episode 311. Dial 311 for Linux. And uh, this was Tony Bemis. Jay LaCroix. Phil Parada. And Tom Lawrence. That's it. See you guys next time. All right. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. <laughs>